This is verse 1, Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed the Lord together with the entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and and do not be silent. For I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is God's word, and let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for your word, and we ask for your help to understand and obey it. Lord, would you grant this request for your glory, for your honor, for our usefulness, and we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, let's start with a question. Uh, What is the goal of ministry. That passage ended with he stayed there two years and he taught the scriptures to them. Uh, that word ministry, I suppose, could mean many things to many people. It, it, it would need some specification if we're going to try to answer that this morning. Specifically speaking, it would be the gospel ministry and that would be the ministry of God's word. Now, it would include uh, paid ministers on staff at a local church, but that would not be it. There'd be far more, many, many more, uh, maybe 99% more would have to do with those who call themselves Christians, who understand the gospel, and God intends them to share that with other people. Somehow, some way, he gifts them differently so it doesn't always look the same But if we were asking the question, what's the goal of that gospel ministry that everyone is tasked with, what would would the goal look like? What would success be? Would that be soul saved? Well, that would be important. That's a good indication that you're doing something right. If you're articulating the gospel, people are hearing it, understanding, and obeying it and the church is reproducing, that, that's good. Dinner time, and you're the only one there, it probably means there's a problem. If the line is full and they would use Corinth as the only town, you got to get through Corinth to get there. Um, large amounts of the population at any given time were unsettled because it's made up of merchants and salesmen and sailors. And you could imagine that this would contribute to the city's reputation as one of uh, 
Indulgence would be a good safe word to use. Uh, if the whole town is made up of, of basically just people traveling through, you could also imagine certain types of business and enterprise which would profit from people who aren't staying very long. A lot of what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. And the world knew it for those very reasons. That is where Paul is. If Athens was given over to the glorification of the mind, Corinth was given over to the glorification of the body. Paul would spend a couple of years here working, preaching, teaching, writing, and would write back to Corinth, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Uh, Let me give you an excerpt of some of the things that he wrote about to this church in speaking of his past when he arrived. This would be in 1 Corinthians 2, but he says, And I, when I came to you, that's what we just read, he just arrived in Corinth, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That's the way they did it in Athens. He didn't do it there either. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And listen to this. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Would you describe that as discouragement? I would. Um, Sounds like December with a busy schedule and worse. Like you've got everything just right and then the car breaks down or something worse. But he's in need of some encouragement. Weakness, fear, trembling. So near the end of his second missionary journey, after having been run out of almost every town he visited, except for Athens where he walked out alone, he now is in the city known for its immoral living. And this is where he gets to work. We see that in verse 2. He found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, his wife Priscilla. Claudius had run them out of Rome and everyone else who was a Christian. The persecution begins. And then because they were of the same trade, that may be the way that they met each other at the place where you buy tools for tent making or something. He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And every Jewish boy was taught a trade. There's no such thing as a Jewish boy playing video games and just left to himself. No, before they were able to stand on their feet, they're being taught the trade, and that would be their livelihood. And even the most famous of rabbis were to support themselves by a trade. That, that's the way this worked. It was a bivocational setup. Uh, Paul would argue differently, though, regarding the church and its teachers and paying them so they could focus on nothing but that. But strangely enough, he never took anyone's salary. He would take missionary gifts. We see one associated with this passage that connects him to the Philippian church. But it's a very interesting dynamic there. To answer the question, why wouldn't he? Because these people don't know him and they don't know Judaism. This is a Greek audience and he doesn't want any confusion that he's selling any of these things for his own profit or gain. Now, because Corinth was a major commercial center, undoubtedly a large Jewish synagogue there uh, with a large attendance, and that's where we see in verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, last time, he's teaching on the Sabbath in the synagogue, but every day he's in the Agora. Well, now every day he's working, and on the weekends he's teaching. 
But look, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, we get a shift here. Paul was occupied, and that word means busy with, as if he's now not building tents. He's working off some other means, occupied with the words testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Uh, The arrival of his colleagues, Timothy, Silas, uh, mean a few things at least. You can go to other places in Scripture and, and fill in the blanks. But it brought at least a report from the Thessalonian church. That's good to hear. He was worried about them. Remember in his writing. Um, there's also a financial gift from the church in Philippi. That's good. And that might be why he's able to be occupied with the Word. And then not to speak of the encouragement of being back together with his entourage. He'd been separated for some time. So, I think we've got enough here to at least make a case for the first point. Hard work and sacrifice. He's working hard. He'd been sacrificing. And it's not a hard case here. It's not said specifically. We're we're trying to figure out what he means by occupied with the word. But he's not afraid of working. And I would think that the Apostle Paul, who would absolutely fall over dead rather than make a mistake with the Word of God, probably made a good tent. I wonder if anybody later said, I have Apostle Paul edition tent. You know, I'll let it go for such and such. It's hard, but I'll do it. You know, I I would assume maybe they got famous. I don't know. But what worth having doesn't require even that minimum, hard work and sacrifice. Can you raise your kids without that stuff? correctly without hard work and and sacrifice you could raise them incorrectly by being selfish and letting someone else do that um no emotional hard work and sacrifice add to it what about um a relationship let's, let's go with a big one to start with your marriage does that involve hard work and sacrifice if you expect it to work at all Now, I've known marriages where all the hard work and sacrifice was on one side, and it was enough to keep it together. But somebody's providing some hard work and sacrifice. Relationships don't just work out. They fall apart unless you manage them and invest in them and give yourself for them. That's that's how they work. What about your job? Can you be at the top of your game? All of us, when we're little, we watch football or basketball or hockey and we go out in the yard and we play around for about 10 minutes and say I'm going to do that too it's a little more to it than that same thing for what you get paid for you're you're evidently worth your paycheck and maybe at a certain point you get it dialed in but at the beginning it was full of hard work and sacrifice or it wouldn't exist what about your Christianity Can you call yourself faithful without hard work and without sacrifice? If your existence as a Christian and the responsibility you have to help get this message out to other people is not hard and it's not a sacrifice, then I think you're doing it wrong. Not Isaac Mooneyham says so. Your scriptures and your lap says so. There's no way around it. It's going to be hard work and sacrifice. We see it with Paul. And we should see it for ourselves. 
It, it can't be, well, I've got to have hard work and sacrifice with my marriage and hard work and sacrifice with my children, hard work and sacrifice with my job. And if I have time, maybe I'll have some hard work left over and some sacrifice for the ministry of God. He gave you your life, and then he gave it back to you. It cost him his, and he's going to give you son and daughtership and glory with him forever. You owe no one like you know him. The gospel's free. Holiness costs everything. I know you got up and dressed up for Christmas to come and hear something about Mary, Joseph, and the donkey that's not in the Bible. And you didn't bargain for hard sayings from the life lessons of Paul, but it's true. It's required. It's hard work and it's sacrifice. Everything else is the same. Why would we think that the business for which Christ died would be less? Number two, faithfulness requires speaking the truth, and I'll add, even when no one wants to hear it. Maybe that previous point would be part of that. Verse 6, and they opposed and reviled him, and he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. Now, do you think if we're using our imagination and we're trying to put this together, I think most of, of this culture relates best to what's played out on a screen rather than read from pages. But do you think the, the drama kind of heightens at that point? Shaking out his garments, telling them, Your blood is on your head. I'm out of here. I, yeah, I would think there's probably quite a bit of, of emotion involved in that. I think a lot of people watched with their mouth open. I think the room was quiet for a bit after he left. It probably didn't happen over an afternoon. It had been some time, and he's getting nowhere, and he says, I'll go to teach someone who will listen if you don't want to listen anymore. Now, this, this is Old Testament stuff. You ever heard that? The man just went Old Testament this is Old Testament. There was a story about the watchman whose job it is to sound the alarm by blowing the trumpet. If someone comes in the gate or over the wall to harm anyone inside and the watchman did not blow the alarm, the blood of those people are on his head. But if he blows the alarm, and everyone inside says, eh, it's just another alarm. We got stuff to do. My show's on. That'd be all right. And harm comes to them. The blood is on their heads. This is what Paul is saying. I've sounded the alarm. You've heard the alarm a bunch of times. You don't care about the alarm. I'm going to go sound the alarm for someone else. And the idea of shaking out the clothes is kind of like taking the dust off the bottom of your shoes. It's... it's it's to say, I don't even want your dust or your crumbs. I'm going to leave those with you. Um, my, my, my grandmother, uh, which was my father, had a mother and a grandmother. This would be my great-grandmother, um, who uh, we called her Mama Kay, raised my father for some part of his life. She would say things, if, if she didn't really approve of or like or assess much value to, she'd say, well, I never lost nothing in Myrtle Beach. That was one of the places she'd say. Never lost nothing in Myrtle Beach. Paul never lost anything in the synagogue in Corinth. He shook all of that out. Uh, I can remember 
my daddy saying, got along without you before I met you, going to get along without you now. <laughs> it's kind of a mic drop, for real, and on purpose. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He left there, went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, and his house was next door to the synagogue, so he didn't go very far. That, that kind of anticlimactic, right? You can imagine him slamming the door and a doorknob coming off in his hand, and then he just walks next door <laughs> instead of like peeling tires and going 100 miles or whatever. And then if you keep reading, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed the Lord. Who did? The leader of the synagogue, together with his house, many of the other people. So it'd be like, let's just say you visited that Saturday. And there's this guy who seems like he's been around, but nobody likes him. He's kind of coming unglued. Oh, he's saying he's going to have our blood on our own heads. He's going somewhere else. He leaves and then comes back in after he's left and said, by the way, I'm taking your pastor with me. <laughs> That's what he did. The leader of the synagogue goes with him. So the whole place is not just alone in their principles. They're alone without a teacher as well. I think that's great. Be quite a scene to try to direct that one. So, what were they fighting about? Why the dramatics, hysterics perhaps, that the Christ was Jesus? That, that was the point. That was the point of contention. That this Messiah in Scripture is that Jewish carpenter that was crucified. That's your Savior. The one born in the manger, the one that died on Easter, that guy, he's your only hope of heaven. And that's when they threw him out. So is that discouraging? Yeah. You would think you'd have home field advantage there. Not at all. Hard things are hard to say. Would you agree to that? Lord, help those who need to say hard things over the holidays. Sometimes your love demands you tell the truth. Because if the truth doesn't matter, then is it love? And then how do you say the truth in a loving way? It's not hateful or sounds that way. It's tough. So this is where we get to verse 9. And right about the time it seems Paul needs it. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Which is a way of saying, I made you for this. And you're doing exactly what I had you to do. Don't stop. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. I have many in this city who are my people. So Paul told us he was afraid. We don't have to look for that. Weakness, fear, much trembling. God speaks to him and says, don't be afraid. How many of you like to get an encouraging note from others in this body. I do. In fact, I, I, I'm, I might be like dead by now if I didn't get them. Because there's enough to kill a man in a church. <laughs> it just takes a long time to do it. <laughs> but how many of you know what Damage can be done with one bad phone call. And then how much encouragement it takes to get you back up to where you were before that balloon deflated. Encouragement is priceless. We need it to survive. 
Because down here on this earth, we, we don't have reference points for heaven. We know it's true. We believe it by faith. We have to have the faith because we don't believe it because we touched it with our hands. So from here to now, then to back to now, we're going to need encouragement. And God usually gives us people gifted with that. You know who they are. You, you, you want to just squeeze them in half sometimes. We need more of you. Where's the cloning machine? We need more Barnabases. Sons of encouragement. In this case, it seems as if there's no one on the planet qualified to give Paul what he needs. God has to do it himself, which is amazing that the Lord would send him this vision. Don't stop. And what does he say? First of all, I am with you, which is, which is enough if, if that was all there was. And some people go to the trouble in the commentaries to say, well, this is just for Paul. This isn't our vision. It wasn't given to us. Yeah, but the guts of it are given to us other places in Scripture. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God has promised he's with us just like he's reminding Paul. There's the, the 23rd Psalm. Dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Dinner in the presence of my enemies. On and on and on. What else did he say? No one will attack you. Now, Paul had been attacked. And I don't think it's the end of the attacks. Especially the one, if tradition is correct, that involves Nero. But not in Corinth. Because God has business for him in Corinth. And that's the same with any of the rest of us. Might sound a little weird. I remember hearing it in rah rah youth group uh, pitches. You will not die one second before your usefulness, as far as God's concerned, is finished. And then you grow older and you wonder, standing out here, Lord, we need this person. And you've taken them home. How, how does this work? Well, this is where either we believe or we deny the sovereignty of God, that he's in control of it all. And that if the bad guys, whatever you want to call them, should take our lives along with our freedom, what's God going to do about that? Raise us from the dead. <laughs> you're bulletproof. If you're saved and you know it, your body might die. Your soul doesn't die. In fact, it's a fast track to glory. And that's what we see in all the martyrs through the scriptures. I mean, it's, it, it's the truth. We don't want to talk about it. No one writes a Christmas card about it. Hey, if you happen to die before Christmas, you'll be in glory with the Lord. Merry Christmas. <laughs> right? Just wanted to be an encouragement. Um, no, and that's not all he said. I have many in this city who are my people. This is the most... I guess, I don't know if you use the word cryptic, if that would fit, but it, it, it's, it's veiled. We'd love to have much more elaboration because at this point where Luke is writing, the church in Corinth had not gotten off the ground yet. There aren't any people, much less many people. So how can he say, I have many people in this town? The only way to answer this passage is that he knows something that Paul doesn't, and it hasn't taken place yet. That's back to that sovereignty of God business. This is where some of these passages of Scripture that are tough in trying to figure out how we're supposed to evangelize come in real handy 
when explaining and understanding passages of Scripture as we see them. Because if we can't settle the election versus free will debate, if you try to run this passage, Paul trying his best, doing his best, it's not working. Sounds like it's up to Paul and it's his fault. But if you get to this where that's God's business and all he needs to do is be faithful, then it makes sense. The work hasn't panned out yet. The messages haven't yet been delivered. The people haven't yet heard them. Their hearts haven't yet been opened. But it's as good as done because the Lord's promised it. Um, You've got passages like Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined for us as adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, then that, that goes right well with, uh, I have many in this city who are my people. You just haven't seen them yet because it hasn't happened yet. And I remembered going through this passage in Virginia, and I had written down, uh, okay, Mooney Ham, are you telling us you believe that predestination stuff? I have to. It's in here. And if you want to say you believe the Bible, all of it, you have to say that too. But it's not that simple. Because what did Paul say earlier? Whose blood's on whose head? The people that willingly chose to dismiss the gospel. That sounds like free will, doesn't it? You don't even have to turn the page. They're both there predestined before the foundation of the world, you better believe this because I'm leaving. That's the last time you'll hear it from me. It's on you. Walk the aisle. Make the decision. Repent of your sins. Do it. You do it. So folks, if we want to say we believe our Bibles, we have to say that we believe both of them. And then the business about trying to square them both, there's no speed square down at Home Depot to help you with that one. It's called a mystery. We should sell those. Mystery speed squares. You can settle this speedily by just calling it a mystery and leaving it to God. He's doing his thing and he expects you to do yours faithfully. That to me is a great word. I love the passages. And you can probably tell I'm a little excited about them. Where they live on the same street. Right? It's your decision. And God determined it before the foundation of the world. All right, let's look at uh, where we're at so far. Faithfulness requires hard work and sacrifice. Faithfulness requires speaking the truth even when people don't want to hear it or don't want to hear it because they don't understand it. And I don't know of anything more discouraging as a parent than a child who doesn't want to hear the truth or a church that doesn't want to hear the truth or a loved one that doesn't want to hear the truth. The third one here, and I think this is what helps us with the discouragement, is faithfulness requires acting on the promises of God. There's going to come times where your fuel tank is spent, where you've tied a knot at the end of that rope, and it appears that you've got nothing left. And I think it's on purpose, because at the end of your tank is where 
the promises of God are most clearly evident. And you'll have to just burn that stuff as fuel and keep going. We've actually covered 9 and 10 already, but these are the promises that were made to Paul. First, I will be with you. That's my presence. No one will harm you. That's my protection, says God. And then the last one, souls will be saved. That's my providence. And that's what allows ministries to keep going. I know what the goal is, and that's faithfulness. But faithfulness, if it depends on you, if it's your being smart and being clever and having enough time to get something interesting to say so that people will keep coming and keep listening, it eventually will crumble. Because that's just what's a mere man. But if the sovereignty is on God and He's doing the saving, but you're doing the faithfulness, why wouldn't He give you what you need in order to get done what needs to get done? Which would a mother find more comfort in with a wayward child? You pray faithfully, and I'll be God, and I'll be fair. Or is it up to the mother to be clever and winsome and manipulative, perhaps, to figure out however she needs to get truth through a hard head? I'm going to go with God being God all day, and I'll try to be faithful and trust him. Because I think that works best. So what did Paul do? He stayed a year and six months, almost two years, teaching the word of God among them. He doubled down. That's what he did. In an awful place. That he would... One of these days, if we have enough time, we're going to teach through First and Second Corinthians. And there are going to be times where mothers are going to want to take their hands and put them over their children's ears. This, this is uh, for mature audiences only. That's where he's working. It's an impossible place. All that stuff that we hear when we're doing communion about how they'd messed that all up and turned it into all kinds of craziness just in order to give each other compliments on the fine food while the poor people had nothing. Yeah, that place. And he survived it for a year and six months till his... Orders were placed elsewhere. I think it all happened by acting on the promises of God, which helped him endure discouragement. So what's the question today? What, what, what do we do with this? That's what was. What about here now, where we are? I think the best question is just, are you faithful? That's the tough one. And you'll have to answer it. I can't answer it for you. And every now and then I get a wild hair and think that it's part of a pastor's job to define what faithfulness is down to a personal level. I think I'll leave that to smart people who can figure that out for themselves. But if you consider your situation, uh, faithfulness is exempt. Let's just say there's uh, two groups of people. I was thinking about three. We've got time for two. 
Um, the first group, everything's great. Sun shining. Kids are doing well. Uh, job is doing well. They're successful. Um, they don't need pills to get through the day. Are you faithful, though? Because on the good side of it, you can confuse everything going well with God being happy with you. When you can walk maybe a hundred yards in any direction and find somebody who's doing fine and dandy and doesn't even know who he is. So it can be confusing. And to think that, well, God's blessed me. He, he must be happy with me. And if an audit was done, faithfulness to the ministry of the word through your local church is not top tier. It's down here somewhere. Flip the coin. Let's say things are bad. In fact, you are in a portion in life, maybe middle age, where it's just starting to feel like all the good stuff was a dream. And life is really madness. And when you think things couldn't be any worse, that you're in your lowest spot, something comes along and just builds a subway under your crawl space full of misery, agony, tears, trouble. Are you faithful in the middle of that? When you wonder, could God even know that I exist? Because I think the scripture calls for faithfulness in season and out of season. Not because it has to do with you. That's our problem as Americans. We want to think that it's all based on my individual experience when it's not. In fact, Jesus said, whatever you give up here is going to be given back to you. Double there. The exchange rate is insanity. But we want to act like this is all there is. This is a hard word, isn't it? Paul had to learn the same hard lesson. I find encouragement in that. He got discouraged, needed an encouraging note signed by Almighty God to keep going. And I'm glad he did because I need First and Second Corinthians, First and Second Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, maybe Hebrews. James was written by James. But you get the point. He had a lot of work to do. What does your ministry to the Word through your local church cost you? We're not talking about money here. That's another thing. There is such a thing as buying your way out of faithfulness. I don't want to do that either. Do you speak truth into the lives of others, even when they don't want to hear it? Do you act on the promises of God by holding on to something eternal rather than something temporal? And can it be said of you that you hit a roadblock, so you decided... I don't know what to do, so I'll just stay here and be faithful. <laughs> That's a good spot to do. When you don't know what to do, don't, don't do nothing and don't do anything. Just do the basics. Do what you know to be true of the Bible. My mama used to use that whenever we were in a tight spot. She would take whatever height was uh, you know, more highly than you ought to think of oneself right out from under us by just saying, you've got enough work to do just behaving the parts of the Bible that you do understand. 
and then work on the parts that you don't understand. But right now, I'm just looking for a little bit of uh, obedience. You know, we, 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 we feel like we're just around to be coddled and complimented in churches where we go to feel good. No churches where you go to get equipped to be good. And the feel good comes from the being good. That's where the good feeling comes from, from obedience. It's tough, but it's true. So Paul stayed for a year and a half. What it gave him the motivation, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. I am with you. Now, we're going to sing to close this service, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And what I want you to look for in there is easy to spot. In fact, you probably know it. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. You suppose Paul the Apostle's Corinthian hopes and fears were met in Jesus before they ever happened? Absolutely. And so do yours and so do mine. Whatever the problem is, that boy in the manger is the answer. He's the world's only hope, the one on whom everything depends. It'll take an Easter to make sense of it all, but it's all there in concept. And really, the punchline at the end is simply this. The darkness does not win. The light of the world is here to dispel the darkness. The darkness is no match for him. He will have whom are his. Souls will be saved. Ministry will go on. The question is whether or not you want to be a part of it. And to hear those words from your Lord and Maker, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christmas time, for Christmas hymns, for Christmas traditions and memories, recipes, gatherings. Lord, we ask your help to prepare us for the days ahead. But Lord, we ask you to motivate us through those promises that we'd act on them. We can't lose if these things are true. And Lord, would you remind us in subtle ways or loud ways to get our attention, whatever is needed, that all you look for is faithfulness. People who will serve like you served us in order to share with them what was so costly and precious. And Lord, would you see fit to find us useful? We ask this as our request. And that's in your name. Amen.